From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to Total SF. My editor, Rob Morris, and editor of our Throughline section. Welcome, Rob. Hey, how's it going? It's going excellent. Uh, we're four of nine weeks into Throughline and the San Francisco Chronicle, looking at a post pandemic Bay Area. Um, this is the most fun that I've had in a long time, and, and this is not a time that I associate with fun. Um, I wanted to ask you about the through line. Where did this idea come from? What is it? So it kind of originated um, a couple months after the pandemic began. Um, you know, like you, I was moved from features and arts and culture coverage into the news section where we were covering the pandemic real time. Um, and as we were kind of devising new ways to organize and, and think about how we wanted to use the newsroom, um, talent. Um, one of the ideas I had was so many of the stories that we were talking about were just like so rooted in the moment, which was great. It was, we needed it. But I thought that we didn't have enough content that was looking into the future and what some of the long-term effects of experiencing this weird time in our history could be to our society and to the Bay Area specifically. So I talked to former editor-in-chief editor Audrey Cooper about this, just kind of proposed the idea like I just said right now. And she said, cool, go for it. Give me some notes on what you think it would look like. Um, and she let us do it. She gave us an awesome team, including you, and we're rolling, and it's fun. Yeah, well, it's been a, a great experience. Um, this week's podcast is Peter Schwartz, one of the many interesting people I've been interviewing for this project. Um, I wanted to ask you, though, Peter Schwartz is a futurist. He's going to talk to us about the future. You've been reading all these articles every week. What is your feeling about the future? Is it better or worse working on a section like this? Uh, for me, it's been better. I mean, like, as I as I mentioned earlier, it's like, you know, we were covering the pandemic in real time, and I'm editing stories where we're talking to survivors who almost died, and they're recounting what it felt like and all the weird symptoms they had, and they're talking about how they almost lost their family, and it was really, really damn depressing. You know, it's like I got to the point where I think it made me a little neurotic, where I didn't want to leave my apartment for a couple months. Um, mm -hmm. And editing these stories and talking about them, kind of conceptualizing what we want to do and where we want to focus has made it more hopeful. You know, it makes me feel like there's probably a better place for us to be in the future than we are right now. And the future may actually be better than it was before the pandemic as well. I mean, I think that some of the, the things that are changing are not necessarily going to be so restrictive, but also kind of enlightening and probably expanding in how we live life. Yeah, and that's a, a theme... Um, that comes through talking with Peter Schwartz. Um, he's someone, he mentions World War II as a time that was, you know, a real wrenching time for America that people came out on the other side and wonderful things happened. Um, 1906 earthquake is an example. And uh, Peter Schwartz, he founded the Global Business Network. It was sort of like a Justice League for futurists in the Bay Area, Stuart Brand, other people involved. He's Senior Vice President of Strategic Planning for Salesforce now. And my favorite kind of interview, he's very, very intelligent, but talks to me in a way that doesn't make me feel any less smart. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. I need that too, man. We talk to smart people through the through line and I need them to dumb it down for me, you know? Yeah. So the through line every Sunday, what is our final date of the through line, Rob? Do you have it on your calendar? Yeah, it'll be September 6th. Um, that's Labor Day weekend. It'll be a Sunday, of course. Um, and that's a special issue because um, we're going to have our, our readers kind of have their voice in that thing, you know, letting them pose the questions that we they didn't really see answered in the previous sections. And also kind of just like, 
telling us what they think about the future. You know, we'll also mm. have some like like kids providing drawings and essays and stuff to show their perspective as well. So it should be cool. Well, I'll look forward to that. I've been going out and getting the paper every week. Um, the very first paper, I felt so good about the Chronicle. Um, I went to my regular spot and it was sold out. I haven't had that happen in forever. Uh, went to another place. It wasn't at Safeway. Ended up at 7-Eleven. Got my Chronicle. Um, I'm going to keep getting the Chronicle every week. I have the digital edition, but it's really nice to have this section in my hands. Congratulations, Rob. It's, it's been been great so far. Likewise. And I'm like you, I got to say. So, like, there's a couple times when I almost took my neighbor's copy of the paper on Sunday morning because <laughs> it yeah. just looks damn cool. You know? It does. Um, don't do that at home, but I understand the urge. Thank you, Rob Morris. Peter Schwartz coming up. I'm Peter Hartlob, and this is Total SF. Thank you very much. Peter Schwartz, welcome to Total SF. Uh, welcome to Zoom. This is this is all really new to me. Uh, even someone who looks at future scenarios, this has to be uh, a really different, unexpected time for you. Well, uh, yeah, it's, it is a profoundly uh, uh, different time, but not at all unexpected, to be uh-huh. honest. Uh, this was probably the most forecast uh, uh, discontinuity I've ever seen. Um, I've written about it several times in the past, but many people have. This is not a surprise. This is not a black swan. This is a black uh-huh. elephant. It was a big elephant in the room, and we were just in <laughs> denial about it. Well, actually, a number of previous presidents were. So, actually, this is no surprise at all. Uh, in fact, you can go back to Wired magazine. We wrote a scenario for this back in 1995 in which we talked about airlines shutting down. The, the pandemic begins in China in our story. It's known as uh-huh. the Mao flu in our story. Um, so, uh, th- this was quite foreseen. Every time that I speak with you, I, I learn a lot. Um, I find you an energizing person to speak with. I'm curious, like, like kind of origin story, even as like a child, was there a point where you just became fascinated with the future and with scenarios? Absolutely. You know, uh, I, I, I wanted to be an astronaut. I was uh, excited about space and space meant the future, right? Cause we couldn't go into space just yet. So I, I loved science fiction. I read, uh, you know, Asimov, the foundation trilogy was uh, profoundly uh, significant in my case. Uh, the, the main character of the foundation trilogy or the, the kind of uh, founding characters, a guy named Harry Seldon, uh, mm-hmm. who was the first futurist. He developed an approach for predicting the future. In fact, the license plate on my car is H Seldon. Uh, and so uh, I, 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 I was grabbed with it right from the get-go. I used to draw pictures, uh, I wasn't pretty good at it, of cities of the future. Uh, so that was very much on my mind, from, probably from the time I'd say I was about seven or eight years old. Did you think at any point early on that it could become a career? Um, not, not before um, I graduated from university. I didn't know there was even such a, uh, anybody got paid to do anything like that. Um, I mean, I graduated with a degree in astronautical engineering back in 1968. Uh, I wanted to be an astronaut, but the space program was drying up at that moment. Uh, so there weren't any jobs to be had, no new astronaut positions being created. Uh, but I, I discovered that there were people who actually got paid to think about the future. Mm-hmm. And I got myself hired as a research institute, uh, re- a research assistant at Stanford Research Institute, where they had a group that uh, was funded to study the future. And I started there as an RA. 
What was your first job? Uh, mission planning for the space shuttle. Uh, nice. It was actually uh, doing scenarios for different uh, visions of how the space shuttle might develop uh, over the course of the 1980s. Um, so, yeah, that was my actual first project. So you're in the Bay Area. Um, did you start meeting a lot of like-minded people? I, I you know, yeah. I met a lot of people in, in Global bis- Business Network over the year, um, which you, you co-founded, I think. And, and uh, it just feels like, I'm sorry to go back to comic books, but it feels like kind of like the super friends when you're all together. <laughs> it's just all these like great minds, eclectic. Um, were you energized in the Bay Area? Oh, yeah. Look, there were two pools of, of people that I had connection to. One was the group at Stanford and SRI and what became Silicon Valley. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the computer group, Alan Kay, computer music group, uh, Hyung Group Computer Club, uh, People's Computer Company. So there was that whole scene around uh, Stanford, SRI, and so on, where I worked. And then there was the whole Earth scene. Stuart Brand, uh, Peter Warshall, um, Kevin Kelly came along. So there was that whole gang around Whole Earth, Paul Hawken. Uh, I was on the board of the Whole Earth Truck Store. And so there were these two pools uh, of uh, remarkably talented, incredibly interesting, highly original uh, uh, people that were became that I was part of their community as well. And still friends and still working with them today? All of them, yes. Uh, every mm-hmm. one of them that's still alive. <laughs> Well, in terms of uncertainty, I'm wondering, you know, what, what we're facing right now in terms of future scenarios. Is, is there anything like like what's going on right now, COVID-19, that, that you've dealt with? No. This is the greatest uncertainty I have ever experienced. I mean, I went through the oil crises of the 70s, the financial crises of the 80s. Uh, the wars of the 90s, the terrorist incidents of the 2000s, the financial crisis of 2008, all of them, this dwarfs them all because of the magnitude and and, and ubiquity. I mean, the whole world is experiencing this and uh, it it is an enormous crisis on the scale of a war. So, and the outcomes are by no means predetermined. Uh, The uncertainty is still very great. In fact, I was going over the scenario work with my team today, and we were looking at uh, the analysis that we have uh, literally the next nine months. We're doing scenarios for the governor of California, helping him think about the future, as well as for Salesforce and our customers and and others. And uh, what we realized is that the uncertainty three months from now, nine months from now, a year, given the nature of the dynamics, will still be very, very great. And and do those scenarios multiply? I, I know you don't predict the future. You, uh, We've had a couple conversations before that you look at scenarios. Um, do the scenarios multiply? Do, do Does it become more complicated for you? Yes. There, there, look, uh, there are a number of different possible scenarios, but the biggest recognition we've had is that they're very different in different places. California is not uh, New York, is not Florida, is not London. Uh, uh, the UK is not Germany, is not Japan. So the thing we've realized is that uh, every place geographically is actually in different scenarios. Uh, and, and like we started off really well, then we here in California, we opened up too soon. And I think Gavin Newsom regrets moving too quickly. Um, and so as a result, uh, we've got another big wave and we're going to have to do it again in one way or another. Uh, so uh, the, the truth is that there are multiple scenarios, but they vary a great deal by location. I'm wondering when you're sitting down, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, I know you got together with a lot of minds from Deloitte, too. And mm-hmm. when you're sitting down, how much are you looking at data and research and all the facts before you? And how much of it is just pure imagination? Great question. 
because, of course, great scenarios are built out of both. Um, it, it, data matters a lot. You know, you, you, this is not science fiction, as you know, and we'll talk about it later. I, I felt right sci-fi movies. You, you have yeah. much less of a constraint in the world of sci-fi movies. In the world yeah. of scenario planning, you live in the world of facts. Um, and so you actually have to deal with, in this case, you know, dynamics of a, of a virus, critically important, uh, policy choices and, uh, that, uh, that countries make, and so on. These are all uh, factual uh, phenomena. But uh, if you really want to see the surprises, it takes imagination. How could those trends change? How could these forces combine in novel ways and so on to produce surprising outcomes? So really great scenarios are built out of a combination of rigorous analysis and creative imagination. Just analysis, it's pedestrian. Uh, just imagination, it's sci-fi. If you want to make it useful for policy, it takes them both. Is it preparing something like that? Are there similarities between that? And I'm going to I'm going to drop my first pop culture reference. But you uh, consulted, worked uh, with Steven Spielberg on Minority Report and came up with a lot of uh, uh, futuristic things that now when I watch the movie, I'm like, oh, got that one right. Got that one right. You know, are there similarities between the two? Oh, yeah. Look, uh, again, uh, in, the, in the case of Minority Report, uh, Steven wanted to make a very realistic film. And so I brought together a team of about 15 people, and we sat there for about four days in, a, in Shutter's Hotel down in uh, Santa Monica with Stephen and the scriptwriter and the art director and so on. And Stephen would say, so what about advertising? What does that look like in 2050? Uh, what is a, uh, uh, an apartment like? Uh, what is Tom Cruise's car like? And so on. And we invented all that stuff. But... All of the people who were in that room were expert in things like urban design, in uh, computer interfaces, social behavior, and so on. And we debated and discussed it in a fairly rigorous way, but it still required a leap of imagination to get from what was plausible to what you would actually want to put on screen. Um, mm -hmm. Now, look, it also helps to have Steven Spielberg as your director and, art, uh, and uh, Alex McDowell as the art director and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. the, the, you know, it, it takes a, a, a remarkable amount of creativity, but it was built on really quite substantial and rigorous knowledge. What about, and, and just kind of going back to these scenarios for COVID-19 or, sure. or any scenario that you're building, how much are you fighting your own bias? Oh, um, huge it, issue. Is, is that a struggle? Do you oh, totally. worry? Yeah, yeah, all the time, because we, we're all biased. You know, uh, I have my own... Uh, look, I'm naturally an optimist, yeah. right? So I tend to easily see the... You know, it, the downside scenarios are easy to imagine. It's easy to imagine how things go wrong. That's the easiest part of thinking about the future. Much harder to imagine how things go right. Now, I tend to be an optimist and give people more credit. I like people. I'm not very cynical, etc. You know, so uh, I, I more easily can imagine the optimistic scenario. Uh, I need people to challenge my thinking. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, also I'm American. I'm white. I see the world. I'm 73. I've had a particular set of experiences. You know, I went through the 60s. That helped shape who I am. You know, I'm bald now, but I had hair, substantial <laughs> amount of hair out there, what you used to call a Jufro. Uh, but <laughs> I am biased. So the way I deal with that is to make sure that in any conversation like this, thinking about scenarios, I have a multiplicity of points of view. Uh, people who are prepared to challenge each other, uh, challenge me. Every single time, with no exceptions, that I've gotten the future wrong, it's because it was an inadequate diversity of people in the room, 100% of the time. That was the, it was not that it couldn't be seen. It was because we were just talking to ourselves. We were living within the same paradigm of biases and, and failed to see the surprise, 100%. 
that is the essence. You want to see the future, you've got to have a diversity of points of view. Well, you, you got this great team together um, back in April, um, and uh, I wanted to, to just ask you a little bit about some of the scenarios sure. that you found. Um, also tell me, I mean, does April feel like five years ago for mm-hmm. you? Yes, yes, it uh, definitely does. Yeah, so what, what, types of, what types of things were you looking to do, and, and what did you find with, with this uh, scenario planning that you sure, did? Sure, well, the, the, the effort you're referring to was effect published by Deloitte. Uh, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the consulting company. And a number of my former colleagues from GBN are there. And one of them, Andrew Blau, reached out to me right away and said, hey, you know, we ought to get our old gang together and think about the, the future. So it was really his idea. I have to give him credit for that. And and we did. We got together. And a lot of the people that uh, some of your readers may be familiar with, like Stuart Brand, uh, uh, Kevin Kelly from Wired, uh, Nils Gilman now at the Bergruen Institute, uh, Catherine Fulton uh, runs uh, the Philanthropy Institute. So a lot of different kinds of, again, minds. That was my purpose, was to get, again, a diversity of, of, of points of view into this conversation. And, and there were, uh, we had uh, also the historian Neil Ferguson, uh, conservative, who I, I love but always disagree with. He and I, you know, fight all the time, but he's so brilliant, it's challenging. Unfortunately, he's often more right than I am. It's really painful. Uh, uh, Martin Wolf from the FT. So we brought all of these minds together to, to think about really post-pandemic, where could the world come out? And and laid out a, a number of different possibilities that were kind of uh, profoundly different worlds lying out there in, in the future. Uh, worlds, for example, where we saw big geopolitical shifts. Uh, worlds where we saw structural shifts of leadership moving from, say, the uh, political world to the corporate world and so on. So uh, uh, these were, and, and frankly, more anarchic worlds out there where there was no structure, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, a, a very um, uh, 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 disordered world in the future. So we were looking at kind of the big picture of how the world might be organized, say, uh, five years from now, uh, uh, post-pandemic. We'll be right back after this short break. You know, one thing that jumped right out at me was in a couple of those scenarios, um, you had uh, your scenarios, good company scenario, lone wolf scenario, sunrise in the east. A couple of them really uh, tackled surveillance. And I find this topic fascinating because so much now is about... Um, surveillance, contact tracing. I I may be using surveillance too narrowly or Mm -hmm. broadly, Mm -hmm. but um, surveillance could be one of the things that saves us. That's what we're hearing. But I've grown up my whole life. I was raised by hippies, and, uh, and, and I thought government surveillance was a bad thing. In movies, surveillance is often, you know, part of the tool of the villainy. And I was wondering, um, coming into this, you know, first of all, what, what do you feel about the U.S.'s relationship with surveillances compared to maybe some other countries in the world? Well, I, th- I think it's a very important question. Um, uh, and, and obviously one, for example, we dealt with in uh, Minority Report. It was clearly a surveillance society in so many different ways. Uh, and interesting, the thing that we got wrong about it was that it was not Washington, it was Beijing today. Beijing is already there. The, the, the surveillance society is ubiquitous. And so if you really want to see it at work, uh, you can actually see what it means. Now, in the U.S., our instinct is inherently to say, you know, that that's repugnant in some way when we, look, when we hear what's going on in China. But my son, Ben, 29, lives in Beijing. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, he works for a Chinese game company writing games that are coming to the United States from China. Uh, mm-hmm. He's a game writer. 
Uh, and, you know, he has all the kind of ubiquitous opposition to uh, surveillance and so on. And he's a, a millennial with all that kind of concern about big government, doesn't like any of that stuff. And he said something very interesting. We were visiting in Singapore around Christmas. Uh, he flew down from Beijing and he said he was astonished at how quickly he was willing to give up his privacy for convenience. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, everything is convenient as a result. You don't take, ever take out your cash. Every system recognizes you instantly. You flow into the underground. You flow into your office building, wherever it is, because everything recognizes you. All the friction is taken out of life. You go to the restaurant. You don't take out your credit card. It knows who you are. And your bill is paid and so on. You know, and everything is easy because of the surveillance society, right? But, of course, the government knows everything that you're doing in China. Right. And he said he was surprised at how willing he was willing to how easily he accepted that. So I do think it's a big issue. But I also think the honest truth is that for security reasons, for convenience reasons, now for health reasons, gradually we will accept much, much greater surveillance. And in the end, we really won't be Mm -hmm. too bothered by it, because, in fact, for most people in most situations, it will be more beneficial than harmful. There will be uh, times when it is abused, when data is stolen, when people are harmed by it. But call it for 99% of the people, 99% of the time, it'll mean that you didn't have to pay, uh, show your BART ticket to get on BART. It means you didn't have to check out at the supermarket. Uh, it means that uh, when somebody stole your kid's bike, it will have been seen, uh, and so on. Uh, so, you know... Uh, uh, oh, and that unhealthy people will be detected before they get on the airplane. Mm, I'm serious, right? This still se- this seems like a pretty big, fast shift, though, at, at least where I'm sitting. And maybe it's my age, but because um, I, I get on Zoom calls and I always ask this question. Um, and we've been working on this through line project that's very future oriented. And anytime there's someone younger, I ask them about that. How comfortable are you with this? And they're like, eh. And. I, I still feel like it's a it's a pretty big fast shift. It's remarkable to me. Well, look, I, I mean, the, the the honest truth is, uh, we are taking these steps uh, today out of necessity. Mm-hmm. We'll have the choice, but my guess is that uh, you know we we are going to be in a in a world with much greater inter- electronic interaction. Uh, uh, a world where much much more is digital in that respect, and our digital footprint will be everywhere. Uh, you're too young to remember. Uh, uh, Don't be uh, sure. Oh, <laughs> uh, the author of Understanding Media, who who argued uh, back in the '60s that we were now in the global village, mm-hmm. uh, and that uh, the uh, the what was true in the village was that everybody knew everything. You know, if mm-hmm. you were beating your wife, we knew it. Uh, uh, if uh, you were an alcoholic, we knew it. Uh, if your kids misbehaved, we, everybody knew it. Uh, we're now in a global village where the truth is everything can be known about everybody. You can see my hot tub on Google Earth, right? Mm. Now, fortunately, yeah. I wasn't in it when they took the last picture. But having said that, <laughs> my wife's car was parked out front, and I could tell. So, you know, she wasn't running around with some other guy. Well... What I mean is that we actually are moving into that world of the global village, and we have to assume that everybody knows everything. And I think that will be the emerging reality. Is there looking worldwide right now is, do you see examples of good surveillance and bad surveillance and that the surveillance is is helping the situation versus surveillance that kind of scares you a little bit? And I'm thinking about those scenarios potentially for the United States. 
Well, the, the, the place where you saw it actually move rather dramatically and swiftly was uh, uh, the UK, London. Mm-hmm. They put in surveillance cameras everywhere. Um, uh, the average Brit was on TV 38 times a day. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, they put in something like 2 million cameras within a couple of years. And it was essentially all about security. And it was intended, uh, it came about uh, largely not because of crime, but because of terrorism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was actually the IRA. Uh, you may remember there was a major bombing in the 1980s of the Westminster Tower in the city. Massive damage, a uh, number of people killed. Uh, but the one that really pushed them over the edge was the uh, uh, killing of the horse guards. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and, and as as one uh, Brit said, well, they've gone too far. They're killing horses now. <laughs> uh, and, and so uh, uh, that triggered a massive security wave in the UK. Now, the interesting thing, nobody objected to it. Nobody. And terrorism disappeared of that sort. They had almost no more incidents from the IRA. Mm-hmm. It ended. Uh, and relatively speaking, it has been fairly benign. One has not heard of any kind of, let me call it, inappropriate use of those cameras in ways that have given anybody concern. So mm-hmm. I'd have to say that they deployed it without a lot of resistance and have made use of it in reasonable ways. The incidents that they've had, you know, uh, uh, people driving vans into crowds or the subway, the, the, the underground bombing, uh, have all now been documented, frankly, because they, they could see what was happening. Yeah. You know, I, I just did a piece on, uh, uh, you know, the potential future for biking and walking in San Francisco, and I was not shocked, but a little surprised that the biking and walking activists are pushing really hard for automatic speed enforcement cameras, which, again, a few mm-hmm. years ago, I, I would have thought, I, the first time I came across those was in Arizona. I thought it was a conservative concept, and now it's something that a couple of the more liberal nonprofits are, are advocating for. So I can see how it could shift. I mean, and the, the idea being that they would eliminate racial bias and in terms of uh, ticketing for speeding and slow things down and maybe save a few people in the tenderloin. But um, Well, we've had uh, a number of pedestrian deaths and bicycle deaths and so on. So San Francisco is particularly sensitive to that, I think. Yeah, I just thought San Francisco would be more sensitive to cameras watching what you're doing. But um, as I said, I think I have some uh, uh, mental shifting to do into this new society that we're we're heading in. Um, I did want to ask you, there's no good segue for this, but uh, you were involved (laughs) with a couple of my all-time favorite films. And then now during the pandemic, I don't know about you, but I'm going back and looking at... Uh, either revisiting films that that I haven't seen in a while but I liked and maybe introducing them to my sons or uh, getting as many recommendations as I can on underrated films. Um, first one I want to bring up, War Games. Sure. Tell me, was that the first film that you had involvement with or had you been working on stuff already? That's a 1983 film. Uh, we actually wrote it in 79. Uh, so yes, yeah. it was the first. Uh, I uh, What actually happened was that the two main writers, Walter Parks and Larry Lasker, and Walter's the guy I worked with in all the films I've worked with. He eventually became uh, Spielberg's producer and ran Amblin. Uh, but Walter and Larry uh, got to me when I was at, uh, still at Stanford Research Institute uh, through some mutual friends, and they were working on a script they called The Genius, about a boy and a scientist. Um, 
And uh, for a variety of reasons, they wanted to talk to me, so I started a conversation with them, and I said, well, look, you know, that's an interesting piece of the puzzle, but what's really interesting with kids like that today are computer games. This was before mm -hmm. PCs. This was before there was no Apple computer yet. We were still building our own computers at home. Uh, all the nerds were building computers and inventing games. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, that was what was happening. And I said... This, this kid, if you want to talk to him, this has got to be about gaming, electronic games, and what we're really building are war games. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's where it all came from. Uh, and that, that was the interesting uh, uh, origin of the film. Are there... Uh, have you gone back and watched it recently? Because I have, and I can tell you it holds up well, and not, not a lot of, you know, traditional action, but keeps the pace going. Have you, have you watched it recently? Yes. Uh, well, I, 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 the last time I saw it was very fun. It was for the 25th anniversary re-release, which we did at uh, Google. We had hundreds uh -huh. of Googlers turn out, not surprisingly, uh -huh. all of them who had been affected by the film as kids. And they brought us laser discs for us to sign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So, yes, and I, like you, I was surprised at how well it held up. There was not, you know, there were no obvious big gaffes in the film. Um, uh, and uh, the, the story hung together. And frankly, it was my first effort to wrestle with, in some sense, the ethics of AI, because that's what this was really about. Hey, you give that computer freedom, man, it might accidentally start a war, right? Yeah. And that is literally what the essence of that story was. One of the first films to really deal with the ethics of AI. Uh, prior to that, by the way, one of the little known films was Colossus, the Forbin Project. I have never heard of this film. Oh, well, okay, <laughs> there's one for you. Get Colossus the Forbin Project. You will recognize the sets. You can see the set from your house. I'll tell you. Okay? Uh, all Clue. right. Okay? You can see the set from your house. When you recognize the <laughs> set, you'll know exactly what I mean. And let me say, it was absolutely brilliant. Not a great yeah. film. But in dealing with the question of AI, absolutely brilliant. This was about 1971, 72, something like that. Well, I'm going to find it. We can find everything. Um, good recommendation. You also worked on, I think, I call it the most underrated San Francisco film. About the biggest knock on it is that there aren't as many San Francisco locations as some other films. Uh, Sneakers, again, have you watched it recently? And uh, what was your involvement? And, and what do you think of it? Uh, Sneakers uh, came about because, again, Walter and Larry were working on the idea of some kind of a hacker film. They liked that idea, right? And, and yeah. we started talking. And I said, well, look. We had just completed, a, this was my last project at SRI before I went to Shell. Uh, uh, we had just completed a project for the NSA on a new coding method that had just come out called RSA codes, which appeared to be unbreakable. And uh, the question, uh, the NSA had tried to suppress the uh, methodology. They actually tried to get them to cancel public meetings, not publish the papers, and so on. So they thought this was really dangerous to get out there. And we did the study for the NSA. Was there any scenario for them actually succeeding in suppressing it? And the answer was no. There was no way. Too late. Done deal. This is knowledge the world has. You're not going to go back. Uh, you're in a world where these RSA codes are going to be real. And so that became the origin of the film with the NSA trying to capture the chip that was the essence of the RSA code. Um, and that, so that's where yeah. the, uh, the, the, the kind of plot came from. And the, the speech at the end where Cosmo and uh, Redford are up on the roof and they talk about the value of information. 
And the whole film was driving, because we had, Walter and Larry and I talked a lot. This was the beginning. We, the well already existed. I was already online communities were beginning to develop. We could see that a new information era was being born. And so the whole purpose of the film was to get us to that speech at the end where they were really talking about the value of information. It's all about the information, all about the data, because uh, that was the future. So that was what the film was really about. Well, I think it's just such a great film. Again, it, it holds together well. It has that nostalgic element. There are things that you watch and go, wow, I remember, you know, when computers used to look like that. And on the other hand, it, it, it's completely coherent. So. Well, and, so, and one thing just to tell the story, Dan Aykroyd, of course, is in it. He's one of the hackers in the film. Uh-huh. And yeah. he's obviously the funniest thing in the film. Every Conspiracy one of his lines, theorists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he ad-libbed that whole thing. It was all on the fly. Uh, yeah. I mean, the chemistry of the whole team was great, but uh, Ackroyd ad-libbed every, every one of those lines. Do you, in a situation like that, do you go on the set? Do you get to meet, like, Sidney Poitier and Robert Redford? Maybe you don't want to. I don't know. But... Rarely, rarely. Yeah. The, the truth is they don't really want to deal with the writers, uh, yeah. to be honest. Uh, but in this case, I did spend a fair amount of time with Redford because he was really interested in the ideas of the film. Yeah. And we had some big issues to wrestle with in the, the, the conclusion of the film, so... <laughs> we were having uh, uh, they'd been shooting we had a lunch at uh, then there was a rest- great restaurant called Post Trio uh-huh. uh, right on Post Street and uh, we were going to have lunch and kind of hash out the final conclusion of the, the, the film and uh, with the script writers and producers and so we're I, I, I arrived early uh, and I was waiting for Redford to arrive uh, in his car from the set and I was standing on the street and Redford gets out of the car and the street had been empty before and suddenly there were a dozen women around. I, I don't know how, what happened. And I, and I said, oh, Bob, don't worry, they're here for me. You know? <laughs> when we're sitting in the restaurant, we're sitting hunched over the script and every once in a while, Redford would lean back and smile and you hear this, ah, go through the restaurant, right? <laughs> so, you know, uh, as nebbish as like me, maybe you don't want to hang out with Redford all the time. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a good one. Yeah, he's, uh, yeah. He, but he was a nice guy, terrific, really smart. I, no, I don't, you know, I, 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 it's a privilege, actually. I, I have been very fortunate. I've been able to work on very smart movies with very smart people. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for indulging me. Oh, um, my treat. A couple of my favorites. And I just wanted to end with, you mentioned that you're an optimist. Yeah. Um, lay some optimism on us. <laughs> what, I, 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 know, I don't want to make people put their head in the sand. I don't want people to feel like there's not a crisis going on here. But what, when you're having an optimistic moment, sure. what are you thinking about? Yeah, look, uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. This is as bad a crisis as any of us have experienced. Well, actually, there are people in some war settings and so on. If you came from Afghanistan, maybe this is not so bad. Yeah. But uh, uh, most of us, this is the deepest crisis uh, we've ever experienced. And it isn't going to end very soon. It's going to be bad. Uh, the economy is going to struggle. Uh, we're going to see uh, more illness, more death and so on. So I don't want to sugarcoat it in any way. But crises, in the right sense, can induce remarkable change. It invites reimagination and reinvention. How we work, how we communicate, how we engage with each other, how we educate, how we provide health care, how we shop and buy. We're seeing the air. Look, I, I can see pollution, and I don't see any. Uh, I'm sitting up here. I can see Interstate 80 out there with about 20% of the traffic on it. I haven't seen a traffic jam in five months, right? There have been gains. Uh, from this. I, you know, I've talked with Gavin about this, about essentially the new California that's going to emerge out of this. Um, uh, uh, much stronger social connections. We will understand really who are the essential workers, 
right? Uh, all those people we ignored who were putting the food on our grocery shelves, who were driving the buses, who were collecting our garbage, and so on. And all those people of color who just suddenly were there in the background are now in the foreground. So there will be social gains. There will be technological gains. We're going to learn a whole lot about viruses uh, out of this. We'll learn what it takes to organize at a large scale. Hopefully there will be political gains out of this, i.e. in Washington. We will see change that leads to reasonable leadership because not only have we got a health and economic crisis, we've got a political crisis at a national level, an absence of leadership. So uh, my hope is that if we're standing, sitting here talking a year from now, a number of things will have happened. We'll have new political leadership at the national level and we'll have a, a kind of unifying response for the country, not a dividing response. That we will see people in communities learning to collaborate using new tools. We'll be educating our kids in a variety of ways, in place and remotely. We'll do healthcare in place and remotely. We'll be shopping in novel, entertaining experiences and buying remotely. I'll never buy Tide at the store again. It'll be delivered to my house. But the next time I want a suit, I'm going to go still go back to Wilkes uh, in, in the city and so yeah. on. Great experience. They give me champagne with my suit uh, <laughs> and, and so on. So what I mean is it'll be a very different world. But I think on the whole, for likely for the better, many of us are reimagining and reinventing. And so for me, that's the upside of this. Every crisis invites you to do that, uh, to come out of it uh, with new tools, new capabilities, new opportunities. I, again, is this the way I would choose to get there? Not at all, right? This is not my preferred scenario. But it is the reality of, of a terrible scenario that creates the necessity of invention that we can actually produce something far better than we started with. That's uh, that's wonderful, and I still feel very cautious, and I'm going to take this seriously, but I'm going to take your words and uh, uh, feel a little bit better about the future we can create. So thank you so much, sir. I, I again, am energized um, after speaking with you, and I wish you the best, and, uh, and uh, yeah, take care of yourself. My pleasure. Take care. Thank you. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Rob Morris and our guest, Peter Schwartz. Total SF is a production of the Chronicle. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album Community and Cable Car Bell Ringing by eight-time champion Byron Cobb. Support Total SF in the newsroom that creates it by treating yourself to a digital Chronicle edition at sfchronicle.com slash pod. 